welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. I'm Erin Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. In our last series of podcasts, we have been looking at scene types and conventions from the rich history of Baroque opera. We even looked at the economics of opera production in the 17th century and how it compares to today. If you haven't heard those or would like to brush up on your Baroque opera history before continuing, check out Baroque Banter at the Pinchgut at Home page on the Pinchgut Opera website. Today we discuss something that is one of the great glories of Baroque opera, and that is vocal ornamentation. We know that singers improvised and ornamented all the time, turning the composer's score into something that was uniquely their own, and they did this in a fresh and vibrant way that augmented their artistic appeal. Audiences went wild about a singer's agility, inventiveness, and creativity. Vocal ornamentation was something that also distinguished the good from the bad singer. And in fact, audiences of the past often booed singers who either didn't ornament enough, did it in a poor style, or repeated themselves. Ornamentation was central to the success of any Baroque opera, and it was also important to the success of a great artist as well. So what do we know about Baroque ornamentation, and how might we appreciate stylish ornamentation today? Let's dig into some descriptions and sources, discuss some terminology, and listen to our amazing Pinchgut artists. The Ballo detto Eccardo by Tarquinio Marula from 1637, 
performed by members of the Orchestra of the Antipodes for our opera film, A Delicate Fire, by Pinchgut Opera. That piece, with many sections that repeat, is a great starting point for our discussion of ornamentation. So much improvisation and ornamentation is taking place by all of the instrumentalists in this recording. Matt and Karina, playing the violins, vary each repeat with extra notes and different rhythms. Hannah on the harp, myself on the harpsichord, and Simon on the guitar are improvising the accompaniment on our plucked instruments, taking our cue from simple directions for harmony. And Anthea, playing the cello, ornaments her line as well, adding scales and filling in gaps and leaps with extra notes. Matt, Karina and Anthea are all playing melodic instruments, and so the ornaments you hear are called divisions. They reduce the longer notes of a piece into a series of shorter notes. Many treatises were published in the 17th century with lists of the numerous melodic patterns that fitted into each melodic interval or note length commonly found in music of the time. And these patterns could be transferred directly to the melodic line that the soloist wished to ornament. Now, why did people do this? Well, because, as Agarazzi said in 1607, whoever ornaments, quote, gives grace to the consort and enjoyment and delight to the listeners, unquote. Not for nothing were ornaments called graces in English, as they made a tune, quite literally, graceful. There were basically three ways in which 17th century divisions were constructed. Many treatises also gave these riffs names, just as jazz players today might call some ornaments by nicknames, or even in sports where various manoeuvres have shorthand monikers. Okay, let's do some simple divisions. Here's a tune that needs some ornamenting. Now, the simplest way to add divisions was to insert additional passages between the notes, but each figure had to end on the first note that it starts with, that is to say the original note. And by doing that, you don't run the risk of introducing some bad counterpoint. So you're always ending with the note that you're ornamenting. So often these figures sound like little circles. In fact, they called them sometimes circles or even gruppetti, little groups of, of ornaments. Here's what they sound like. Something like that. That's the simplest way. Now, the second way was to start on the original note, but instead of ending on it again, like the circular figures you just heard, you move to the next note by conjunct motion and you add some rhythm as well. Something like that. Now, this is a bit more risky because some of the extra notes we're adding now might not work so well with the rest of the piece, the other parts, and introduce some bad counterpoint. But many writers said, well, if the ear is not offended, then it's totally fine. Now, the last and third way to ornament in this division manner was much freer, and sometimes we replace the notes that we're ornamenting with other notes that we hope are consonant with them. They're either next to them by thirds or fourths or fifths at cadences, and we're hoping that everything's going to work out. Now, this kind of free development often includes little patterns, little motifs that are moving in sequence. And so it's a nice artful touch that's the sign of a skilled musician. So here I might use some dotted rhythms and do that. 
something like that. These kinds of divisions add entirely new notes and patterns to existing melodies. The first manual that taught people how to create divisions was published by Ganassi in Venice in 1535. When the Florentine Camerata invented opera around 1600, all these kinds of divisions and ornaments had been part of Italian practice for decades. The new texture of monody, in which a solo voice was accompanied by harmonies on the lute, harp, organ or harpsichord, this new texture was perfect for the delivery of the new art form of opera. The basso continuo, with its bass line and improvised chords, emphasised vertical rather than linear aspects. Linearity was a trait of earlier counterpoint and ornamentation, and so embellishment in monody gradually attained more harmonic implications as added notes added delicious spices of dissonances. This new emotional style in vocal music caused two modifications in the melodic lines. The smoothly flowing notes of 16th century divisions were sometimes alternately dotted to form figures that might emphasize sobbing or sighing and a new vocabulary of short embellishments was invented for use on notes sung to the accented syllable of emotive words. This new style of ornamentation is found perfectly on display in Monteverdi's first opera in Orfeo's big set piece from Act 3 of L'Orfeo. Monteverdi's score prints two lines for the singer here. One is the barest skeleton of the melody, and the other one is a highly embellished version. Now, why did Monteverdi include the unornamented line? Possibly it was Monteverdi's way of attempting to notate embellishments that he considered tasteful, and by including the unornamented line, he was hoping to educate performers and composers in his ornamental style. It is so difficult to try and notate the beauties of ornamentation, as so many writers seem to emphasise, and this example by Monteverdi is a unique example of early 17th century vocal ornamentation. Ornamentation was the province of the performer, not the composer. In the preface to Euridice from Florence in 1600, the composer Peri praises the embellishments introduced in his music by Vittoria Archilei. She has, quote, always made my compositions worthy of her singing, adorning them not only with those ornaments and those long turns of the voice, simple and double, but also with those pretty and graceful things which cannot be written, and if written, cannot be learned from writings, unquote. Ornamentation defied notation. It defied being captured in musical notes. So Monteverdi's skill in writing down this version of Possente Spirito is awe-inspiring. Let's hear Mark Tucker sing these ornaments in Pinchgut's highly praised 2005 recording of L'Orfeo. If you listen carefully, you'll still discern the three ways of creating divisions that we discussed earlier, although the freer form, the third way, is by far the more dominant variety. 
You'll also hear a distinctive ornament, which is one note being repeated many times. This is what we call the Italian trillo.
That was Mark Tucker singing the first part of Possente Spirito from Monteverdi's L'Orfeo with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by Anthony Walker. Italian ornaments like the ones you've just heard consisted of notes that artfully danced around a plain melody that was often left plain by the composer precisely in order to allow skilled performers to embellish it. French audiences heard singing like this from visiting Italian musicians between 1645 and 1662. When Lully established French opera in the late 17th century, he did not tolerate additional embellishments of his carefully notated melody. The only genre in which elaborate divisions flourished, therefore, was the so-called air de cour. These beautiful ornaments were called doublés, and the autocratic Lully, who demanded complete subservience from all his musicians, apparently hated them. But many other French musicians adored the doublé, and important writers like Basili strenuously rebutted criticisms stemming from Lullian prejudice, and he makes a strong case for their beauty. Nevertheless, what the French did really well in the late 17th century was begin to standardise the bewildering array of ornaments, or what they called agréments. The French began to give them names, and more importantly, they assigned them shorthand signs or symbols. 
The Italians seem to have been too busy making music to worry much about writing treatises or standardising ornamental practices. And from 1620, a century-long silence settled on Italian ornamentation theory. The French, meanwhile, began to compile lists of ornaments and very helpfully published them in the prefaces of many instrumental publications. As ever, instrumental practice followed the vocal, and some standard ornamental behaviours began to be standardised in both name and symbol. The most important of these was the trill, or tremblement, as the French called it. This had evolved from the Italian trillo, which was one note, to become an oscillating ornament on different pitches. Because these ornaments occurred at cadences, the French often called them cadence. There are many, many, many different kinds of trills, all with beautiful variants, and all of them are indicated by different signs. The other ornament that became important was the pot de voix. These made the melody more beautiful because the pot, pot de voix joined disjunct intervals together. Masson, in 1694, wrote that they, quote, rendered the melody smoother and sweeter, unquote. Depending on whether it was performed on or before the beat, the porte de voix could also be a leaning ornament, and sometimes they called them an appui, which means in French to push. These, quote, gave beauty to the melody by adding a note which functions as an ornament, unquote. The Italians also had a name for this beautiful ornament. They called it an appoggiatura. Both appui and appoggiare come from the same verb, to push or to lean. You can hear all of these beautiful French ornaments as improvised by the performers, but also written out by the composer in a performance of Charpentier's Salve Puerile. The profusion of tremblement and porte de voix give this music a characteristically French sound that differentiates it from Italian music of the same period.
That was Charpentier's Salve Puerile, performed by Chloe Lancashire soprano, Anna Fraser soprano, Eric Peterson tenor, Nicholas Jones tenor, and David Greco baritone, with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself. Agrément lay at the heart of what the French considered to be proper execution and taste. Basili observed, quote, Without a doubt, a piece of music can be beautiful, but at the same time unpleasant. This is usually a result of the omission of the necessary ornaments, unquote. And Corrette wrote that, quote, A song without any ornaments is like an unpolished diamond, unquote. In the choice of ornaments, Saint-Lambert advised that, quote, Good taste is the only law that one can follow, unquote. And yet, contemporary writers were seemingly unable, clearly, to define what le bon goût, or good taste, actually was. Hotter wrote that, quote, One can scarcely give more certain rules for the distribution of ornaments. It's just taste and practical experience, rather than theory, which can teach their appropriate use, unquote. Others recommended study with a master, or critical observation of one at work. Now here we come to something that I call the ornamenting paradox. Most treatises exhort amateur performers not to overly ornament or improvise. And yet the historical record abundantly shows that everyone ornamented and improvised, obsessively and compulsively. So what do we do nowadays? Do we be tasteful and moderate, or luxurious and decorative? Many writers on ornamentation in the 18th century used culinary metaphors relating to taste. Ornaments are like spices, and so, in the words of Kvantz, too many induce nausea. So, although treatise writers encouraged moderation, it seems that in practice, both amateurs and professionals erred on the side of prolixity rather than plainness. By the time of Handel, Vivaldi, and Hasse, Ornamentation was now basically divided into two kinds. On one hand, there were the so-called French ornaments, and these are those indicated by signs, the slides, trills, turns, and little notes that either connected melodies as played before the beat, or created delicious dissonances with the bass by being played on the beat. And on the other hand, there were the so-called Italian ornaments, These were the melodies and passages that danced around the main notes, with divisions and diminutions that had persisted and developed from the 17th century. They weren't indicated by symbols, but only by notes, although many noted how difficult it was to render their rhythmic variety, and that's why they're so much more rarer in the historical record. J.S. Bach, whose ornament tables were copied from French sources, chose to present the air of his famous Goldberg variations elaborately ornamented in the French manner. It's quite literally graceful in that it is full of graces. Let's have a listen. Thank you. 
Incidentally, there is some confusion in the sources about whether those little notes in the famous opening are played on or before the beat. As the 18th century progressed, the preference for an on-beat performance grew until it became a general principle by the 1790s. And certainly that's how we hear it mostly performed today. But it is possible that some players played it before the beat, like this. So we have French style ornaments, indicated by signs, and we have Italian style ornaments, more elaborate melodic and rhythmic creations that were left to the discretion and confidence of the performer. French style was relatively easy, but Italian style was harder. And ideally, you had a blend of the two as the two styles coalesced in the 18th century. Quantz writes this in the 1750s. With good instruction, the French manner of embellishing may be learned without understanding harmony. But for the Italian manner, on the other hand, knowledge of harmony is indispensable, or, as is the case with most singers, you must keep a master constantly at hand from whom you can learn variations. And if you do this, you'll remain a student all your life and never become a master yourself. But you must know the French manner before you venture upon the Italian. Anyone who does not know either how to introduce the little French graces at the correct places or how to execute them well will have little success with the large Italian embellishments. And it is from a mixture of small and large embellishments that a universally pleasing, reasonable and good style in singing and playing arises. The perfect form in which to assess this good style in singing was the so-called da capo aria sometimes called the exit aria, because under conventions that had begun in the early 18th century, the character was obliged to leave the stage after such an aria. The basic form of the da capo aria is A, B, A. We have an A section, then a contrasting B section, and then a return of the A, which is signalled in the score by the Italian phrase da capo, which means from the top or from the head. This was the traditional site this return of the A section, for the singer to show off their ornamental skills. And indeed, it is one of the great marvels of the historical performance practice tradition that this wonderful, creative and exciting practice has been resuscitated in modern times. Let's re-familiarise ourselves with the De Capo aria. Let's listen to Vivica Janot in a stunning performance of an aria from Hasse's Cleophide. You'll notice that there are moments where the orchestra pauses to allow the singer to embellish. These are called cadenzas, and both the A and B sections traditionally have a moment, a fermata or a pause, that's indicated in the score, and this is the moment that allows the singer to ornament at will without the accompaniment of an orchestra. Pay close attention to the repeat of the opening section and listen for Vivica's ornaments and cadenzas. There's one at the close of the B section and another one at the close of the A section for the repeat.
That was Vivica Janot singing Son Qual Misera Colomba from Hasse's Cleophide with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself and beautifully recorded in the Melbourne Recital Centre by ABC Classic. Vivica's ornaments have been honed and stylized by years of experience. It was the greatest joy of my life to be able to work with her and speak with her at length about Baroque ornamentation. Everything that Kvantz recommends is on display here, a judicious and stylish mix of both French and Italian style ornaments. But it is the Italian style ornaments, the creative and virtuosic reworking of entire sections, that engenders the huge round of applause. An early source for de capo conventions was the Italian castrato Tozzi. He was born in the 1650s, And so, when writing in the early 18th century, he was highly critical of all aspects of what he called modern music, including the extravagant embellishments with which a singer often disfigured the melody. The presumption of some singers is not to be borne with, he writes. They expect that a whole orchestra should stop in the midst of a well-regulated movement to wait for their ill-grounded caprices, learnt by heart, and carried from one theatre to another, and perhaps stolen from some applauded female singer who had better luck than skill. Tozzi sanctions ornamentation in all parts of the de capo aria, but to varying extents. In the first section, they require nothing but the simplest ornaments, he says. In the second, they expect that to this purity some artful graces be added, by which the judicious may hear that the ability of this singer is great. And when repeating the air, he that does not vary it for the better is no great master. Because it was such an art and so reliant on improvisation, not many examples of de capo ornamentation exist from the time of Handel. What does exist was either made for students and so is therefore fairly rudimentary or it's a record of a practice of one individual. And so it's hard to tell if it's representative or broadly suggestive, or even exaggerated or caricatured, as is the case in some examples that are meant to depict the practices of castrati like Farinelli. Several precepts for good ornamental style emerge from the treatises. Professionals recommended that the singer should make the difficult appear effortless, avoid violating declamation, should place legato variations in slow arias and detached ones in allegro arias, balance dynamics and affect, favour conjunct variations and especially favour chromaticism in pathetic arias, use passaggi or divisions in melismatic extensions, those sections that are sung to one vowel, you should avoid the repetitious use of the same ornament, one should emphasise inventiveness rather than technique, one should avoid variations on unpleasant vowels, and you should always enhance or even improve the composer's original intent. We do have some hints as to these ornamental procedures in some surviving ornamentation by Handel, meant for a singer who was not Italian but rather English, and stood in for an Italian who was sick for one performance of an opera. There exists two versions of an aria from Handel's Amadigi, both in the composer's hand, and it gives us a really good opportunity 
to review Handel's ornamental aesthetic and it shines a light on 18th century ideas of taste as well. So here's the original tune. And the text is Sestinto e l'idol mio, morire il voglio ancor. So, if my beloved is dead, I too wish to die. And we hear that in the second part of the phrase. Morire, and Handel gives us that beautiful D-flat. Now, Handel's revision, his ornamentation, is this. This is highly effective, but quite simple as well. You'll notice that Handel uses appoggiaturas as connective tissue, and they're those notes that are performed on the beat that create dissonances with the bass. You can hear it immediately at the beginning, the opening bar. Is the original. He's just adding notes above. So these are poggiaturas, or in French practice you call them appui. And then the next one is a porte de voix. It's those little notes that connect jumping melodies. And it actually ends with a beautiful appoggiatura. And then the second half of the phrase, which is morire, to die, I wish to die, Handel goes like this. So there's first a little slide that paints morire, and then there's a beautiful appoggiatura at the very end to sort of close off the phrase. Here's the original. And here's the ornamented version. Because the cadenza was a moment for complete liberty and freedom, apparently many 18th century singers took this as a moment to show off to the extreme. And so writers were very clear in prescribing rules that delineate what they considered to be good practice. Tozzi in particular was highly critical of contemporaneous practices in 1710. Every aria, he writes, has at least three cadenzas. The singers of our day usually try to discharge a barrage of improvised divisions at the end of the first part while the orchestra waits. With the cadenza of the second part, that is to say the B section, the throat is doubly loaded and for the orchestra time stands still. When finally the fermata arrives with the third cadenza, the whole fusillade painstakingly loaded to bursting explodes with so many divisions that the orchestra is almost driven to swearing from impatience. But in the 1740s, another writer called Agricola translated Tozzi's work, and he commented at this point, Tozzi is thus an enemy of our current improvised cadenzas. It's true that one would rather hear no cadenza at all than a poor one that is often rushed through. It is also true, on the other hand, says Agricola, 
that a fiery person of talent can take his listeners by surprise and add, so to speak, a new degree of strength to the passion the aria is intended to arouse. Agricola wrote down eight rules for good cadenzas. One, don't be too long or too frequent. Two, your cadenza must relate to the main affect or emotional state. Three, avoid repetitious figures, introduce variety. Four, it must be out of time and not too rhythmic. And he writes here, as though the singer has been overcome in passion in such a way that he could not possibly be thinking of being limited by rhythm. Five, go outside the tessitura, but not too much into distant keys. Six, if it's a lively aria, use leaps, trills, triplets and runs. If it's sad, be slurred, dragged and chromatic. Seven, bring in unexpected elements. And eight, don't be longer than one breath and make sure you leave some for the final trill. Now, when we examine surviving vocal cadenzas, it seems that this last rule was the one that was violated the most. And certainly, today one hears singers breathe in the middle of cadenzas all the time. Perhaps this rule was really put in place to guard against the worst excesses, even if people enjoyed these moments when executed by a real professional. Because time really does stop for a moment, as everyone's attention, the orchestra as well as the audience, is focused on the singer's art. Let's hear Vivica's ornamental art again, but now in a slow aria by Popera, Alto Giove.
In 2001, some cadenzas in Handel's hand were discovered by the musicologist H. Diak Johnston. They demonstrate with remarkable accuracy the precepts of Agricola, those eight rules we talked about just now. Most of them have a kind of blue note, a moment outside the tonality. It's what Agricola calls something unexpected. The wonderful thing about these cadenzas is all of them avoid the standard scale plus arpeggio plus trill model we constantly hear today. I think I have heard this boring cadenza about a hundred times at auditions. Let me demonstrate. So here's a version of the cadenza that I think I've heard about a hundred million times, sung and played whenever a Baroque cadenza happens. It goes like this, something like this. Now, it's totally fine, absolutely fine, but it doesn't resemble the 18th century cadenzas that do exist that are short. So let's look at these beautiful cadenzas by Handel. Um, in these, we really just see some exquisite gems of delicate craftsmanship. So Handel was ever the pragmatist, and he gave this singer two versions so that she could alter the cadenza each night. Here's what it sounds like without the cadenza. the 6-4 and then and this is the first cadenza it's really beautiful it goes up to the sixth degree all up there here's the second version that Handel gives the singer at this moment That's like a beautiful Baroque pearl. It's slightly misshapen. It really invites the ear. It's got some blue notes. It's got three blue notes. And it is capable of being sung in one breath. So really quite extraordinary already. Handel writes two more cadenzas in this aria. Um, they're both for the section in the B and the B section. But again, ever the pragmatist, he gives the performer two versions so that she can choose between them or maybe alter them with different performances. Here's what the cadenza sounds like without anything. So that's in the minor. Here is Handel's first cadenza. Absolutely beautiful. Again, there's a little sequence in there. So suggestions of patterns. Here's the second version he does. Just stunning. Really beautiful.
All of these beautiful handle cadenzas have a little sequence or a pattern embedded in them and all of them have that little blue note, a little bit of grit in the oyster that conforms to Agricola's idea of something unexpected and beautiful. They are really exquisite examples and I've actually copied them in my own suggested ornaments for singers in Pinchgut Productions. Let's finish off our discussion today with another aria from Haas's Arteserse. Vivica and I work together on the ornaments on this one, and you'll hear one of the Handel cadenzas incorporated at the very end. It's a beautiful example of historical performance practice where theory meets practice. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Baroque Banter, and I'll see you next time.